We've been focusing on the importance of the resurrection and what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And so in order to begin to understand the reality of heaven, we need to know that God cared about his creation so much that he would become a part of it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That he would die for us in order to redeem us from sin and death and then rise from the grave with a resurrection body. And so Jesus' resurrection ensures that we will be remade with resurrection bodies also in a recreated new heavens and new earth. Now, we've been connecting the dots over the last few weeks between the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of heaven. Because we saw last week, okay, we were in 1 Corinthians 15, that the central point of the gospel is that God decided not to throw away his creation. And so we can't oversimplify everything by sort of making a difference between the body being evil and everything in the soul or spiritual world being good. That God reconciled and brought together his creation and remade it in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's, the, here's what we're going to be focusing on today as we've looked at the resurrection body the last couple weeks. We don't have our resurrection bodies yet. And so what is it like to live today as we await the new heavens and new earth. You see, we still live on the old earth, not the new earth. We still live with the presence of sin and death. And the Apostle Paul addresses this reality directly in his letter to the church in Rome. So what we're going to do today is look at Romans chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to Romans chapter 8 with me, we're going to be in Romans 8 starting in verse 18. Now, Paul writes to believers who are experiencing suffering in this life. Whether that be physical suffering with uh, an illness or with persecution, or whether it was spiritual or or emotional, It it was suffering of that kind, whether they're experiencing doubts or temptation or lies from Satan himself. So Paul wants these believers in Rome to put their experience of life in this broken world into perspective. And that's what we're going to do as we look at Romans 8 this morning. Now, Paul had just, as as we're jumping into Romans chapter 8, Paul had just reminded them and taught these Christians that they are justified by grace through faith, that they are dead to sin and alive in Christ, and that, that, that the message of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in light of the reality of the gospel, he says, what's it like to live in the world that we're in now with the presence of sin and death still? even with the victory of Christ. So let's see what God, God's word has to say here. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. We will read through verse 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. 
But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, I want to tackle this in two different parts because... What Paul does is he addresses this issue of the groaning, the suffering of creation by, by explaining how the bondage to decay isn't the way it's supposed to be. That's the first few verses there, verses 18 to 21. Then he talks about groaning and hope. And what does it mean to hope in the midst of that in verses 22 to 25? So that's how we're going to address the passage here in those two parts. But before we get started with that, I want to pause for a moment and reflect on the gravity of the suffering that exists in the world that we live in and for us personally. Now, friends, we can't take suffering in this world lightly. I think we have to understand the gravity of it because so many people are experiencing suffering today in this world. Here's just one statistic to sort of start the conversation with this. As of 2017... Due to malnutrition and hunger across the globe, there are 150 million children under the age of five who have stunted growth because they don't have enough food to eat. And 50 million children under age five who have what's called marasmus, which is literally the wasting away of their bodies because they don't have any food. Friends, millions of children suffering. Okay, now, this isn't just a statistic. I've seen this firsthand. So let me tell you a a story here. Um, In 2011, I went on a study tour of Israel. I was with my seminary, and we were going there for a couple weeks to go tour around ancient archaeological sites and and do some study of the Bible. So one day, we were walking through a river valley um, and studying the geography of an area near the ancient city of Jericho. This part of the Middle East there is under Palestinian control, and it's in an area with intense poverty. So while we were having a lecture, we're standing there on the side of this dirt road, two young boys walked down this dirt road behind us. They were barefoot, and we could see they looked kind of curious about what we were doing, and so we wait, they, they sort of waited patiently until we finished the lecture that we were doing, and And we began to walk back to our tour bus. And they went around one by one through our tour group and asked for money. So here's a picture of these two uh, boys with a friend of mine, Amy. You'll see it on the screen here. As we walked back to the bus, our bus driver, who was an Arab Christian, he lives from Nazareth, um, he looked very solemn. And sad, and we couldn't understand what was going on. And, and he, with tears in his eyes, explained to me and our friends in the tour group, um, he said, how old do you think those boys are? And we looked kind of back at them down the road, and we said, I don't know, maybe five or six years old. And he started to cry, and he said, those boys are probably between the ages of eight and ten. He said, they don't have food. And so they look like they're five or six years old. Like that's how tall they are and how their bodies are built. This shocked our entire group. I mean, our, our whole group of students fell silent and we realized the gravity of the suffering that they're enduring. 
see, this is just one illustration of the pain and suffering that there is in the world that we live in. And maybe we need to turn a corner here because this is pain and suffering on a scale uh, that seems distant. But there is pain and suffering in our lives and in our own backyard. And so maybe you could ask this question about suffering. or Well, what about you personally? You see, all of us in some ways are touched by pain. I mean, I, I know I have multiple family members who have suffered with cancer. Friends whose marriages have struggled. Dear brothers in the Lord who deal with depression and loneliness. I've watched my grandparents waste away from illness. I've struggled myself with anxiety. With the pain of dreams dashed and plans undone. Work that comes to nothing. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you know what that feels like. You see, many of you I know have experienced the pain of maybe the loss of a loved one. Conflict with your family. A struggle with the decisions that your kids make. Financial burden or even your body aging and falling apart. I think as we just take just two or three minutes there to pause and look at the pain that there is in this world, we have to sit back and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And this is exactly what Paul wants to address here. So as we contemplate the gravity of suffering, Paul is going to put that in some perspective for us. So let's look at the text here again. So let's look at that first part. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, going through verse 21. Paul wants us to see that bondage to decay isn't the way it's supposed to be. Now, he starts by saying, I consider that our present sufferings, this is verse 18, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, let me ask a question to start off. Is he making light of the suffering in this world? No, he is absolutely not doing that. He's not saying that suffering doesn't matter. Here's the key. What Paul is saying is, imagine the greatness of the suffering that we see in the world around us and in our own lives. How great of a problem and, and pain that is. The glory of heaven is going to be so much greater. He's not making light of it. He's trying to draw a comparison to say, this is real and painful. But the reality of heaven will be so great. And so what he does is explain this reality by saying this, that all of creation is in bondage to decay. It is literally the word slavery. It is subject to frustration because of the sin of humanity. Now, in order to understand the argument or the, the, the thing that Paul is saying here, we need to connect the dots again between the doctrine of creation and our doctrine of heaven because our understanding of how God created the world and what happened with the fall is connected directly to the issues of heaven. So when God created the world, he put humanity in charge as his administrators. They were made, humanity is made in God's image and Genesis 1.28 says that our calling, our, our task is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over it. 
Genesis 2.15, the very next chapter says, a specific command to Adam was to cultivate and protect God's creation. It's the work and keep is the idea of taking what God made and to create and make things with it and then to protect and guard it as a steward. And so humanity's job description was to oversee the fruitfulness and the protection of the earth to bring God glory. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse of sin and death descended on them and all of creation. See, this is incredibly important. Because the curse in Genesis 3 extends to creation because the pinnacle of creation and the representative of God's image in creation had fallen. And so I've been, I, I said this the other week. At so goes Adam, so goes creation. So goes Adam, so goes creation. This is exactly why Paul picks up the creation language when he talks about Jesus' work of salvation and the resurrection. We saw this in a previous week here. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the new Adam. The greater Adam. He uses that creation language to say that Jesus is the pioneer of a redeemed humanity where the curse of sin and death have been defeated. And we can finally fulfill the mandate we have as humanity to cultivate and protect God's creation for his glory. So this is why Paul uses this framework in Romans chapter 8. Just look again at these first few verses. Let me read verses 19 to 21 again. (laughs) Verse 19 says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, Paul connects directly the future fate of the created world to the revealing of the children of God. You see, creation around us is subject to this frustration and bondage. And so you heard this, what we said a moment ago, so goes Adam, so goes creation. Okay, in the gospel, in Paul's understanding of this and his teaching, he says that we could maybe say this, so goes Jesus, so goes the new creation. So goes Adam, so goes creation. But over here, because of what Jesus did, so goes Jesus and all of us who belong to Christ, so goes the new creation. You see, this creation around us that is in bondage to decay is waiting for the final redemption of the children of God when Jesus returns and the dead are raised because the curse will finally be destroyed. Sin, death, and evil will be gone. And then we will live for God's glory, cultivating and protecting what God has made. So, you see, the glory of heaven will be the fulfillment of everything that God designed and called us to be and his creation to be. But it will be so much greater. And here's the one difference. The main difference. Is that the presence of God will be with us in the person of Jesus Christ forever. Okay, in the garden, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. In the new heavens and new earth, Jesus Christ will forever be bodily present with us. Fully God and fully man for all of eternity. 
suffering, pain, evil, injustice, tears are gone. That the administration of humanity's work over creation is now perfectly for the glory of God. An act of worship. But okay, we know that reality. But here we still are in our decaying bodies. Still in a world full of sin and death. This is where we need Paul to help us know what it feels like to live in this world today. So let's look now at verses 22 to 25. The second half of this passage. Paul talks about the the groaning that the, the, the creation feels and we feel and then the hope that we can have. So let me read again. This is verse 22 to 25. Or let me just read verses 22 and 23 actually. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, Paul uses a very vivid metaphor here. And for those of you women who have had a baby, you know what that experience of the pain of childbirth is like. But here's the important part of the metaphor that he offers. In childbirth, the pain, the labor, and the delivery aren't really the main point. They precede the main point. They produce the main point. They make it very obvious that the main point is on its way. You see, the main point of those pains is the birth of a child. That that new human being entering the world is the main point. So Paul's helping us to see that the birth pains of planet Earth (laughs) and the pains that we all feel are really not actually the main point, but a harbinger of what is coming, the new life that is about to come. He says, really, the, 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 the point is that as painful as it is now, with as much intensity and trauma there can be during labor and during delivery, that the main point is so much greater than the pain and suffering. Because when you hold a newborn, you see how precious and worthwhile that life is. And this is the case for every single one of us. The main point is worth the pain. And you know what? For each one of us as a child, like we're all, we're babies once, there was someone who decided that that pain was worth it for you. Okay, I'm a twin. I was born almost two hours after my twin brother. Two hours. So every year on my birthday, my mom calls me. She says, happy birthday, Brent. And I say, I'm sorry, mom. I am so thankful she endured pain for me. Okay, but let's stop for a moment and grasp the gravity of this. Paul says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What he's saying here is simple. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, We are already free from the power of sin and death. But we are not yet free from the presence of sin and death. Let me say that again. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, 
He died and he rose again. The power of sin and death is done, broken, gone. Christ's victory achieves freedom from the power of sin and death for us who belong to Christ. But you know what? We still live with the presence of it. And so we're in this already and not yet framework. You see, those of us who have the Spirit of God, the very presence of God with us, we have a deposit that guarantees the future inheritance of the kingdom, which is the removal of the presence of sin and death and the redemption of our bodies. This is why Paul turns to talk about hope in those last two verses of our passage. Verse 24 He connects the dots here. He says, when we look ahead to that removal of the presence of sin and death and the redemption of our bodies, he says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You see, even though we sit in the pain and suffering of this world that is in bondage to decay, we have hope in a future reality. We will live in a resurrection life with a, resurrection, with a resurrected body on a resurrected earth in the presence of the resurrected Christ. We don't have this reality yet, friends. But we long for it to come. And this is why we live with hope today. This is why we hang our hat. This is what we hang our hat on when life is filled with pain and when our bodies fail. Now, let me ask a question to apply this. How does the reality of the future hope of heaven change how we live today? How does it change our perspective? Let me offer you a a couple thoughts to just get that conversation started because this is a lifelong process to see how does heaven reshape our reality today. But if, 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 if in other words, we were created to be the cultivators and protectors of God's creation for his glory, how should we, for example, treat the earth today? And yet, if the earth will be never fully restored or changed or transformed until Jesus comes back, that it's in bondage to decay still, should we simply hold out till the end? I mean, you can sort of see the interplay of how you try and address this question. So one of the things that I think needs to change in our perspective, and this is one way we could apply this, is taking seriously, for example, the issue of creation care. Of course, with the tension and with the reality of an already and not yet framework. So, if you've been tracking the news this week, there's been a lot of things that have been kind of fiery in the terms of climate change in the news, right? How do we think as Christians about this issue instead of going side to side on the various political spectrum that we could take? You see, as I was reflecting on this issue and how it's addressed in our culture, I think Christians need to think very carefully about making an, an error on one extreme or the other because even the way that Paul talks in Romans 8 gives us a different path. You see, on one side, we can't avoid caring about what God has made in his creation because when God made it, he called it very good. He chose not to throw it away when sin and death entered the world. See this John 3.16, we all know this verse. It says, for God so loved the world. The, wor- the word world there is cosmos. It means he loved all of it so much that he sent his son to die 
And if you believe in him, you will receive eternal life. And so God loved his creation. He loved it so much that his son Jesus became a part of it. He took on the dust. And so if there's any reason for us to say we can't just ignore or not care about creation, it's because our Savior is a part of it in his material body. Now, on the other side, we also can't get too worked up about the fact that this world is somehow uh, our only hope. When we think about how people talk about creation care today, a doomsday, emotionally charged message that pins the survival of the human race on this planet doesn't see the future reality of heaven at all. See, if we focus too much on this present reality of the cursed earth to the exclusion of the reality of the fact that this is a groaning creation that is awaiting the new heavens and new earth, we will have our hope in an idol and not in the living God and what he's going to do to redeem this earth. You see, we have to keep our heads about us when we address issues like this in our culture because we could get caught up in a very polarizing issue like this and cloud our ability to understand the truth of Scripture because God loves his creation, and yet we await when he's going to redeem and, and make it new. So, uh, friends, there are uh, uh, so many ways to address how what God's going to do to redeem the new heavens and new earth changes our perspective. But let me offer you one last one. I think we need to change our perspective in that we need to long more for heaven. Okay, remember what Paul said? Because the birth pains of this cursed creation aren't the main point, we await the redemption of our bodies. We were made for this earth, but this earth needs to be remade. So we wait patiently, we, we wait eagerly for the new heavens and new earth because that's going to be our forever home. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death or sin. So an early church leader, his name is Cyprian of Carthage. He lived in the third century AD. He gave a series of sermons during a great plague that broke out in the Roman world around 250 AD. This is an age and a time where a plague would, plagues could sweep through an entire region and there was almost nothing you could do about it. They didn't have medical technology or medicine to be able to solve any of this. And so he's preaching to Christians who are afraid of contracting this illness and dying. And they're wondering, do I stick around here and help people or do I flee and try and run away from this plague? There is seeing suffering break out all around them. And in his sermon, in one of his sermons, he says these words, and you'll see it on the screen. Let us embrace the day which assigns each of us to paradise and the kingdom of heaven, snatching us from this place and liberating us from the entanglements of this world. See, he goes on in the sermon to give an illustration of traveling to a foreign country. He says, imagine yourself traveling to a foreign country, and it's normal when you're out on a long journey to want to return home and to have this longing for the familiarity and the relationship of home and of your family when you return. So he says, imagine yourself as a child who's traveled overseas and you desire to return home to your native country with your parents and with your family again. So he goes on in his sermon to say this. Why do we not hasten and run that we may see our native land and greet our parents? There, a crowd of dear ones are waiting for us. 
parents, brothers and sisters and children, a great crowd are longing for us, still anxious for our safety, while already secure in their own immortality. What a great joy it will be for them and for us to see them and embrace them. What pleasure is found in the kingdom of heaven for us uh, uh, without any fear of dying, with an eternity of living. What a great and never-ending joy. You see, for these Christians in 250 AD, facing a deadly plague, Cyprian was teaching them that death is not to be feared when the glory of everlasting life in heaven awaits you. He actually compels them to long for it. And he pleads with them to run toward it because it is their native land. That's what I long for for us, to see heaven as our native land that we run towards. Let's pray. Lord God, as we think about the pain and suffering that we experience and we see around us, we do long for the redemption of creation, the freedom from the bondage to decay, the removal of the presence of sin and death. And we know that, Jesus, you have to do it. You need to return and make all things new by your power. And so, Lord God, even though we sit in the midst of suffering and pain, we look ahead and eagerly await the new heavens and new earth. And in that, we place our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.